Okay, church, has everyone uh, found 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6? Um, it will also put your finger in Genesis 19. But we'll just read 2 Peter 2, uh, 6 uh, through to 10. So why don't we stand and read that together? Beginning in verse 6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Why don't we pray together as a church? Lord, we uh, come today to our third passage, um, our third sermon, I should say, on Peter's examples of your judgment in history. We looked at uh, the days of Noah last week, and today we look at the days of Sodom. I pray, God, for uh, your wisdom in this, because it's a sensitive uh, subject matter, but it's in the Bible for a reason, and so we don't shy away from it just because it's sometimes difficult. We embrace it as truth, and we look to uh, learn the lessons from your word appropriately. I just pray for your spirit to be strong in my mind and in my soul as I, as I speak your word, and that the truth comes from you and, and not from me. So I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as you could tell by our reading this morning, today we're going to be looking at the historical account of God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you remember the context over the last two weeks, you'll remember why. Uh, Peter brings up the judgment of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah because of the potential threat of false teachers posing to the church in his day. These were men that were going to infiltrate their churches, come among them, introduce destructive heresies that would tempt them to abandon their faith in Christ. And really the aspects of the heresy were quite simple. There was two main points. First, they denied the Lordship of Jesus Christ, which meant then there was no authority figure in their lives to listen to. They became authority unto themselves. And second, they taught that one could live a life of sensuality or immorality as a believer and go unpunished by God. If we're to use contemporary words today, they taught the liberal gospel. The false teachers, of course, were in opposition to the apostles' teaching, and so Peter had to bring them a warning and say, uh, remember what God did in the past. Anyone who followed this type of lifestyle or promoted this lifestyle actually went under God's judgment. And the three examples he used were uh, the angels who rebelled against God, uh, Noah and the people of his day, and then Sodom. And these stories were to act as a warning. Uh, reminded them that of God's dealings with fault, uh, the people of the past and uh, therefore do not fall for these false teachers um, in destructive heresies going forward in the future. Well, if you remember from last week, we, we looked at the, the key sort of pointers of what it was like in Noah's day in terms of what the key markers were of what their behavior was like for why God judged them. And probably the number one thing that stood out that God highlighted was the, this idea of violence. They were a violent, violent uh, bunch of people. And that was uh, one thing God could not stand. And it was pervasive throughout their history and throughout their world. Sodom and Gomorrah then, 
would be characterized a little bit differently. Violence would be part of their, their culture, as we're going to see. But the number one thing that they were known for was sexual immorality. We pick this up actually in verse 7 of our verse here. It says that righteous Lot was oppressed by their sensual conduct. So that's the thing that was driving Lot crazy in his soul. And in verse 10, they're defined as indulging in the flesh. Jude actually gives us a more detailed description of the kind of immorality these people were involved in though. So yes, they were flesh, they were indulging in the flesh. Yes, they were pursuing sensual desires. But Jude gives us a, a very specific category of life for these people. When he spoke about Sodom and Gomorrah, he said this. Sodom and Gomorrah were ones who indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. They, were, they went after strange flesh. So the question is, what was that for them? What did that look like? With, turn with me now to Genesis 19, and we're going to read from 1 to 7. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, as Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night, and wash your feet, then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, No, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them, and baked a leavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, and all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Really, there's two issues going on here that characterize these men's, or the Sodom's immorality, I should say. The strange flesh that Jude speaks about clearly here as homosexual relations. The recurrence of the word men highlights this in verse 4 and 5. Two men came into town, right? Two angels came into town in the male, in the male form. And it says that the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, and all the people from every quarter. And they called and said to them, Where are the men who came to you tonight? We want to have relations with them. Now, notice here, too, that this is not just a small pocket within their society of homosexual behavior. This is pervasive. Pervasive throughout the entire culture. Notice the words both young and old, and even more important, from every quarter. In other words, from, every, from north, south, east, and west of those cities. It's pervasive, and it's rampant throughout their entire culture. So dominant in the culture that it's, the text supports that this was the men of Sodom's preferred relationship sexually. It was their preference, more than being with a woman. Why would I say that? Well, we're going to get into this later, so don't panic about this verse yet, because of course I'm going to have to deal with this. But in verse 8 through 10, when Lot offers his daughters up as a substitute for taking the men, they decline. So there's, two, there's men at the door, there's men at the door, and he says, take my daughters, and they say, no, stand aside, stand aside and get out of our way. That's their preferred relationship. Again, for those of you wondering what's even going on with Lot here and offering up his daughters, we're going to deal with that, because I wish I could get away from it, but I'm going to have to deal with it, and that's the way it goes here. 
But anyway, that's the, but you don't miss the point. This is, this is a relationship man on man, and that's their preferred sexuality. But it's not only their homosexuality that's the issue in this passage, it's their violence within it. Their violence within it. Notice that these men are not looking to have consensual relationships, they're looking to take them by force. If I was to put a label on it in our culture, it's gang rape. That's what they want to do, is gang rape. Again, look at verse 4. Before they laid down the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter, and they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? And when they couldn't get, get them the way they wanted, um, it says in, um, in verse 9 that they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door down. Again, this is not consensual in any way. This is, an, this is a desire for a gang rape. So far, or these men are so far gone that it takes a supernatural intervention to get them to back off. In verse 11, the, uh, the angels have to blind these guys to get them to back off. Now, I have to just take a break here and go off the text and talk about something. There are some proponents of homosexual behavior that are in support of it that actually highlight that the issue that God has here in this passage is the issue of the violent rape and not the homosexual behavior. So those liberal Christians who want to support that God's pro any kind of relationship will take this verse and say, the issue here is the, is the gang violence and not the homosexual behavior. Well, it is true that God condemns rape and unconsensual sex and unmitigated violence of this kind. You can look this up later. Deuteronomy 22, 25 talks about the, the penalty of someone who takes someone by force. But other parts of scripture make it perfectly clear that homosexuality is forbidden as a, as a, as a, as a behavior in terms of relationships. Leviticus 20, 13. If there's a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, they shall surely be put to death. Important to understand the context, because this is Old Testament, and in their era, and that is what the law said. So clearly, clearly, although violence does anger God, as you saw the days of Noah, and it does anger him according to Deuteronomy 22, what angered him here was the pervasive sexual relationships because he designed relationships to be one man, one woman, in a marriage covenant, and these men are violating that design. But the problem with Sodom and Gomorrah is they have a double whammy. They're not only pursuing the relationships, they're also moving towards violence in this area as well. So they're going beyond the, the normal standards of homosexual relationships that we see in our culture today, at least in Canada. There is one other argument, though, that some people use outside the Christian community to defend homosexual relationships in Genesis 19. And this argument is unbelievable, but you need to know it. My job is to train you and to teach you um, what's out there. Not that I have the answers to every question or know things that you don't know. But if I've discovered something that I think you need to be aware of, then it's my job to let you know about it. Here's another view that people have about what's going on here. God actually wasn't angered by their sexual preferences, but their lack of hospitality. It was a lack of hospitality. How do you come to that conclusion? <laughs> well, here's what they say. The people hold this view, but they contrast Abraham's previous encounter with the angels, and how he put them up for lodging and prepared them a meal. And then they look at Lot's treatment of, of them, who puts them up for a meal and takes them in for lodging. 
And so they say the issue, therefore, it's an issue of hospitality, and that's why he's mad. But here's how they get around it. They quote Jesus in Matthew 10. <laughs> if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly I tell you, it will be more, more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than for that town. You see how they come around this argument? It goes something like this. What clearly ticked off Jesus when it came to the treatment of his disciples was the failure of these towns and cities to accept them into their homes and be hospitable to them. So therefore, because he says you're going to be judged for that, uh, he says it's going to be harder on you than it was for Sodom, because Sodom and Gomorrah, even though they were hospitable, still didn't go as bad as you because I'm, you're my disciples. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable spiritual gymnastics, but that is what uh, some people say. But you know what's hilarious about the whole thing, or sad, probably sad? If you read the verses earlier, you see that what Jesus says in verse 7, before he gets to verse 14, is this. Go to the lost house of Israel, preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How would they preach that gospel? Jesus is your Messiah. He is here. Repent. That's their message. They're not rejecting them. The reason they're throwing them out of their houses is not because they're not hospitable, it's because they're rejecting the name of Christ attached to their backs. <laughs> if these people would just go to verse 7, not read from 14, they see the context clearly indicates it's not a lack of hospitality. They're getting kicked out because of their connection to Jesus Christ and preaching that they need to repent because He's here. The kingdom of heaven's at hand. But this is the kind of world we live in as Christians, and this is the kind of things that we have to defend and, and walk the scriptures through with liberal scholars and all sorts of things. All sorts of things. Anyway, God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah clearly had nothing to do with lack of hospitality. It was due to their gross immorality. But let's not forget the context of 2 Peter and the significance of remembering why their destruction is so important. Because the false teachers are promoting a gospel that encouraged complete freedom in Arian sexuality. In chapter 2, verse 18, they speak out arrogant words that entice the flesh. And deeply was, uh, Peter was deeply concerned for them because he knew that in chapter 2, verse 2, that many in the church would follow after the sensuality. It was an attractive message. And so Peter said this, Let's not forget, church, what happened in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. God's wrath was poured out on them for not only teaching this lifestyle, but adopting it in their own lives as well. And I don't have to try to convince you of the importance of this message today. As our culture adopts an attitude towards sexuality more and more like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Are we as bad as them? No. Because people from every quarter in Okotoks aren't busting down your doors. But our world is not regressing away from the days of Sodom. We're progressing towards the days of Sodom. And Peter's message to the church is this. If you go down this path, you will not escape God's judgment. Now I want to speak briefly about how God's judgment fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah. In chapter 19, verse 25, it says that the Lord rained sulfur and fire out of heaven. And in chapter 2, verse 6, it says that they turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them and bringing them into extinction. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, in Israel, archaeological digs are perpetually going on. They're constantly digging throughout the whole, the whole land. And they're uncovering civilization after civilization, some of them thousands of years old. 
When Laurel and I were there just a couple months ago, we got to see a couple civilizations that they knew to be 4,000 years old. And we got to see the remains of some of these places, like the walls, their stables, uh, what they, where they lived, the topography, and so on. So we're fortunate enough to see these things. So we're uncovering things 4,000 years old. And you know what's interesting? They've never been able to locate any evidence for Sodom and Gomorrah in Israel. Not one shred of evidence. Even though they have a rough idea of where they're located around the Dead Sea, they've dug and dug and dug. They can't, they can't find a single shred of evidence. So when Peter says they brought them to extinction in chapter 2, verse 6, he really meant it. They were completely incinerated. All but the exception of one. And that was Lot and his family. So the question is, why was mercy spared upon him? Why was he so different? Well, look at verse 7 in chapter 2 of Peter. We'll leave Genesis and go back to Peter. It says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by the lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. In contrast to the inhabitants of, inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah being defined as ungodly, did you notice how Lot was described? Three times in verse 7 and 8 he's defined as righteous. And in verse 9 he's defined as being godly. So he was spared because of his righteousness and because of his godliness. But what I appreciate about this verse, because if I were to ask you to define those terms, you would come up with definitions of those terms, and they would be correct. I'm, I'm sure they would be from knowing you. But what, I bet you none of you would have picked this definition of righteousness or godly when you read this. Look at Peter's definition of righteousness and godliness. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by the lawless deeds. That's his definition of his righteousness. And it all had to do with one major theme here. It had to do with the effects that the sin of the culture were having on the soul. It was the way he was getting affected deep inside his soul by the, and how he was responding to this that showed that he was righteous. And he uses two powerful words here. Distressed, to, dis, to be distressed in the Greek is to be exhausted by labor. To be exhausted by labor or suffering. Or to be worn out. And what's wearing him out or exhausting him is their sensual conduct. There, he's also being tormented, which means in Greek to be afflicted or pained. And again, what's afflicting him or paining him? The things he's witnessing and the things he's hearing. So here's what's important, church. As, Sodom, as a Lot is living in Sodom and Gomorrah, he's going about his daily business. You know, his shopping, his interactions, his family walks. He's sitting at the gate as a gatekeeper of the city, letting visitors in. That's where he met the angels originally. He's got a position of prominence within the city. But as he's going about his daily business, and he, he, he walks the streets and sees how people were living, he, he's, he's just deeply internally heartbroken by the things he's seeing and the conversations he's hearing. They're just riveting him. He's heartbroken. He's exhausted internally. Worn out. 
This is why you get to learn something from Block here in terms of the importance of character and what righteous living entails. See, although he was living in an ungodly society, the society hadn't impacted him and he had to become desensitized. I'll say that again. He hadn't become desensitized by the culture around him. Despite having no Christian community to speak of, with the exception of his um, wife and daughters, which, which we can see from Genesis 19, he's able to maintain God's standards for morality and worship despite the constant exposure to secular society. So he's got virtually no Christian community, and the guy does not waver in terms of his loyalty in worship and his loyalty in his commitments to God. He is absolutely tormented in his soul with what he's seeing and hearing. So he was very much the man that Hebrews describes. He's a man, although who lived in this world, confessed that he was a stranger and exile on it. He was fixated on a heavenly home. And there's a lesson we can learn from Lahir Church. Here's a lesson. On a desensitization scale, okay, put yourself on a scale of desensitization, where are we at? Where do you think you're at? Honestly, are you daily tormented, tortured, inflicted by the things you see and hear on a daily basis? When you watch the news, when you hear about a breakdown in marriage, when you hear about a family falling apart, when you hear about gender issues and confusion, when you hear about issues of poverty, the sex trade, abortion, the corrupt political system, gossip in the coffee shops when you're sitting there reading your Bible, and the three people next to you, you just are belittling their neighbor, their, their dad, their brother, their sister, whoever. Are your souls, and are my soul for that matter, being worn out from this stuff? Or do we just take life in stride? We have this basically banner that says, oh well, that's just the world we live in. Sucks to be them. According to Peter, having this sensitivity and not being desensitized to the culture around us actually is a marker of righteousness. That's a marker of righteousness. Now why it's important is because it doesn't take much to become desensitized. If you're constantly exposed to something, it can become normal to you after a while. And you, st you start to forget at the, looking at the world through God's eyes. Can I give you an example? I'm going to speak to men and women here in the area of movies. Okay? Just a simple illustration. Alright. I'll speak to the men first. Here's how men can easily get desensitized and how I can, I can probably demonstrate it's probably affected all of us in here, including myself. Let's talk about violence in movies. You have your favorite character, right? There's the, the guy or the girl, whoever it is, that you uh, appreciate and you kind of, you, you are, uh, identify with and like the superhero kind of, or character qualities. But the person ends up uh, sort of being on the wrong side of violence a lot. And so what happens is they'll often shoot cops or smash into their cars, for example, to uh, gain victory in the area that you're cheering for. Or they'll use methods of uh, torture or things like that to extract information. And as a man, you're sitting there like cheering it on, going, yeah, you go get them, like, you know, and you identify with that. And you're excited about that. But in real life, in real life, if the policemen in our community were 
run into by vehicles and uh, smashed up in a gunfight, uh, would you be celebrating? If your husband was a policeman, would that be something you'd be excited about? <laughs> if you found out about uh, information being extracted by a, uh, from someone by torture, would that be something you'd be grateful to hear about? I'm not saying we can't enjoy movies, I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is how easy it is to become desensitized. Because we get, we get into that world and because it's Hollywood, we just, and we, we're exposed from the age of like five, whatever, six, and then, you know, and then you're 44, like me, and next thing you know, you've had like 40 years of this exposure. And it doesn't affect you anymore. Or it just minimizes you. But then you get in the real world, and you're like, oh my goodness, like, I'm not looking at this through God's eyes anymore. Because this is normal for me. Now, of course, I'm stereotyping um, men and women here, because I understand that it can go both ways in both of these categories, but I will speak to primarily women in this one. How about your desensitization to uh, relationships? So in the movie, uh, you identify with a male or female character who is in a relationship, uh, often married, and um, is, in a, is in a victim stage. By victim stage, their spouse is failing to meet their needs. And so what happens is uh, you're mad at the spouse for failing to meet their needs as a woman watching this show. And as the time goes on, this, this little man or woman on the side here appears, you know, meets them in the town or some at the skating rink, whatever, and introduces them. They, through their charisma, they start to enjoy each other's company and have small talks. By the end of the show, they are in a relationship. But, what, and you, but what's interesting as a woman, you're cheering on the victim. Be honest. Because you're like, how dare that man or that woman, well, cheer, since they cheering on the woman, cheering on the victim, yeah. So you're cheering them on, going, come on, like, go with that person, go with that person, go with that person, because that's going to make them happy, that's better for them. Yet as believers, would we ever want that in our own relationship? If we're going through troubles in a married couple, would we ever want someone to come in behind them and meet them at Tim Hortons or in the parking lot and develop a secret relationship? Of course we wouldn't. But in the movie, we become desensitized. And we watch these things and we start to walk into those worlds. And those things lead to ruin. Just one simple example of desensitization. We have a lot to learn from Lot. <laughs> okay then, Andrew, if Lot is so righteous, how do you explain what he did with his daughters? I'm glad you asked. Turn with me back to Genesis 19. I'll be honest, this for me has been probably the hardest passage in scripture I've ever dealt with. I've wrestled with this for, since the first time I heard it. And uh, I still don't know if I even have the right answer. But I'll certainly present you with two options. And if you have another one in dialogue that you want to present to me, um, I'll, I'll be gladly willing to hear it. But I'm going to present you two options that I think are realistic. Number one, the reason why he offered up, let's read the verses first, okay? Let's read that 8 to 10. So, I started actually at verse 6. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relationships with men. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like, only do not 
Sorry, only do nothing to these men insomuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. And they said, stand aside. We want the men. All right. Option number one, what's he doing? From Lot's point of view, offering up his daughters is the lesser of two evils. It's the lesser of two evils. This all has to do with verse one and understanding who he believed the guests to be. Look at verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. They're angels. They're, de they're, de they're described that way in verse 1 intentionally. I suggest to you from observations in the text that, that uh, Lot knew that. Why would I say that? Look at verse 1. When he saw them, he rose to meet them and, and bowed down with his face to the ground. You ever see, have you ever been at the, like at the customs at the border crossing and anyone ever bow down to you when you hand them your passport? <laughs> this guy's the gatekeeper of the city. The two people walk in and he bows down to the face of the ground. And I thought, I think I've seen this before. So this morning I went back and I'm glad I did. I went to look at Abraham because these are the same two angels that appeared to Abraham. Guess what Abraham did when he saw them? He bowed down with his face to the ground. And then, and then and he said, and they said, should we reveal to Abraham what we're about to do to Sodom? The point is, is that Abraham and Lot recognized these men to be far more than just ordinary men. I mean, he, who bows down to somebody as a greeting when you're a complete stranger? Complete stranger. So that's the first observation. The second one is how quickly Lot desired to provide them with protection. Somehow I doubt that, I mean, he, as a gatekeeper, lots of visitors would come into your city. Why in the, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't his normal response to put people up in his home. But he's urgent to get them out of the square. He's urgent to get them in their home and prepare, and he actually prepares a feast for them. He uses the word feast there. Same thing that Abraham did, prepared, prepared a feast. You prepare feasts for special guests. I mean, these just wasn't like a hamburger, you know, and a bag of chips. This is a feast. Probably, uh, you know, slaughtered an animal and, and they had a roast and whatnot. But here's the point. This is not normal behavior for, a, for just an ordinary person. Knowing this then, knowing this, Lot probably knew these men were servants of the Lord or his messengers. Therefore, when it came between protecting God's servants and his own next of kin, he chose God over his family from his point of view. That's option number one. Now you still might say, well, it's still not a good option. It still wasn't wise. And we can talk about that in dialogue. I've got some thoughts about, uh, even if, I have some thoughts about even why, even if that was what he did and that was um, right, why it still troubles me to some degree. But regardless, uh, like I told you, I don't have all the answers to this passage. I'm presenting you with the options. But really, Lot is choosing the lesser of two evils. Protect God's chosen servants or his own daughters. And it's a God over man issue. And Jesus speaks about that in Luke 9, right? Whoever, whoever wants to be my disciple must love me more than his brothers, sisters, even his own family. It's maybe that kind of an option for him. Option number two. Lot was just a complete idiot in that moment. Just an idiot. He's a weak father. He made a really bad decision under stress. 
And the interesting thing about that is nowhere in the Bible ever mentions that Lot's decision was a good one. Nowhere in Scripture says he did the right thing. Never commended. But here's what I like about this verse, or this story, and what Peter says. And this is where the lesson will speak to you, and it speaks to me especially. We learn something then. If, if Lot made a really poor decision, even if he chose God's servants over the, his daughters, or was a complete idiot, whatever one it is, or something else, we learn something about how God defines righteousness. Don't we? Righteousness is not defined in a moment of weakness or stupidity. Righteousness is defined by an overall pattern of life and a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that important for you and I? Aren't you glad that uh, righteousness is defined by your pattern of the way you treat Jesus Christ and not a moment of decision that was really stupid or a really grave sin in your life? I know I am. And look at what Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 says about righteousness. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. Solomon even gets it. There's not a righteous man on the entire planet who continually basically lives uh, out God's truth who never sins. Now, I want to be careful here. This is not a license to therefore go and sin. Okay, well, I can never be perfect, so here I go. That's not what he's saying here. The Bible is very clear that those who practice sin, who make it a practice, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So don't play that game. But here's the key. One can still, in a moment of stupidity, or have a grave, a grave issue in their life, and still be right with God. Because it depends on His righteousness imputed to you, and not, not your own in terms of developing that, starting that relationship. So again, God's not defining our lives by a moment of poor judgment or weakness, but a pattern of life. So Lot can be described as righteous, even if he made a stupid mistake in this one moment. And let's be honest, the tensions would be high <laughs> at that moment. You know who's a perfect example of this? King David. King David. He's defined as a man after God's own heart. Yet, one particular year was really bad for him. So we should be grateful that righteousness is evaluated by a pattern of life and not a moment, because otherwise all of us in here, including myself, would be in a whole lot of trouble with God. We've all said and done boneheaded, stupid things since committing our lives to Jesus Christ. That's not a license to sin, but as Ecclesiastes said and says, there's not one righteous man who, who continually does good. So I say all this to explain Lot and the daughters and what was going on in Genesis 19. So let's do our lessons and we'll conclude. First one, all sexual morality will be judged by God. That's the whole point of the passage. That's the whole point. Peter saying to the church, listen, don't get duped by their sensual teaching, their sensual lies. If you go down this path, you're going to be in trouble. Look what happened in the days of Noah, fallen angels, and the days of Sodom. Don't go down that path. Why I think God cares so much about this is because He wants life to flourish. He wants life to flourish. Homosexual relationships can't have flourishing lives because you can't reproduce children. And homosexual relationships, unfortunately, they, they die younger 
the average lifespan is less than a, than a heterosexual person. The, the, the time span is different by about 10 years. And if it wasn't for modern medicine and intervention, it'd be a lot less. So again, um, he wants life to flourish. And that's why he doesn't have any other kinds of, he doesn't want any sexual morality, even outside of homosexuality, performed as well. He doesn't want fornication because he doesn't want any life to occur before being married. He wants two parents with a child in a loving home. He doesn't want us to commit adultery because he wants our marriages to stay strong and be happy, fruitful, multiply. and doesn't want any life to occur outside of that relationship as well. So it's not just homosexuality, it's any sin outside of the marriage bed. Because he wants life to flourish. And he wants to protect families and children emotionally. Lesson number two. Our right to stand before God is not determined by unique moments of sin, but a pattern of life. Ecclesiastes makes that clear. The danger for us comes when we become habitual or patternistic. And there's First uh, Corinthians, uh, I think it's chapter 6, and uh, Galatians 5 speak about practicing sin. Romans chapter 1 as well. Those three places all have it about what it is to practice sin. And finally, as believers, we need to be careful not to become desensitized to the point that ungodly behavior fails to deeply impact us. Always view the world through God's lens. Always view it through His lens. Be sensitive to the things of Him and His truth. And yeah, some things are funny and some things are, you know, good, good for a laugh and stuff. And I get it. I, I, I enjoy a good laugh too. But we always have to remember to view everything through the Lord's eyes. If we can learn anything from Lot. Unfortunately, the poor guy, all we focus on is Genesis 19. Whenever his name is brought up, why doesn't anyone ever like, speak highly of this guy? I've heard pastor after pastor run this guy through the mud. And yet, I'd like to put those pastors' stories in the Bible and see how we do with theirs. I'd love to read their stories out loud in church. And they probably wish they had Lot's track record. Again, this poor guy gets dragged through the mud. He made a bad decision in one day. But the guy was committed to the Lord in his ways. And we could learn a lot from this man, Lot. 